I'm Lauren Fates, and shucks howdy, it isn't Friday at all, is it? That's because the Bebop Beat is doing something a little special today. Our upcoming episode is all about Cowboy Bebop paper publications, mainly the art books, light novel, and manga. There are so many great books in this fandom, with new ones coming out all the time. I'm trying to snag the key animations of Toshihiro Kawamoto myself. We'll be talking to comic artist and letterer E.K. Weaver, a.k.a. Big Big Truck, this Friday. However, we found out that a lot of our listeners have never read the manga. They're out of print and pretty hard to find, so we decided to record a little extra for you. Jamie and I will be summarizing five whole volumes of Cowboy Bebop manga for you, whether you wanted it or not. This is spoiler territory, so if you'd rather track down the manga and discover these stories yourself, hit stop right now. All right, are you ready for the beat? Oh, nobody else is here. So let's start with volume one of just Cowboy Bebop, the first of the three canon volumes. This was my least favorite of the three because it really feels like it's still trying to find its feet. It's very much a series of short Bounty of the Week episodes. For me, they took about as long as an anime episode to read. But the most problematic story is in this one, and I found myself asking Why did they write these? You know, why do these stories need to be told? Later on, as we get into later volumes, I'm able to answer that question. You know, why did we need this? What did we create this for? Not so sure here in volume one. So, for example, the first story of the first manga is called Showtime. All three of our adult human bounty hunters are at the same restaurant chasing different bounties. They run into each other. They all kind of compete, like, who's after the biggest bounty today? Who's after the most expensive guy? And then a fourth bounty walks in worth $5 million. And all of them simultaneously decide to drop what they're doing and chase down this guy. Meanwhile, Ed is back at the Bebop. She distracts everyone with a sort of... I don't even know what we'd call it. It's like a hacker detonation. It just throws the whole restaurant asunder and she ruins their chances of catching the bounty. And that's kind of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the story. (laughs) It leans into uh, them trashing the restaurant and therefore most of the bounty goes to the restaurant's repairs. Ed is really happy because she has a whole bunch of damaged cans to hug and eat later. (laughs) Hug and eat. (laughs) (laughs) But my favorite part of this particular chapter are the chibi versions of Jet and Spike after the restaurant owner says she'll add it to their bill. And it's drawn in really thick marker. It's just one of those like shock frames that you only ever really see in manga. So to see them in this format is actually kind of (laughs) cute. (laughs) Yes, this format does occasionally have its perks, especially in this early issue. There are sometimes like weird emphasis words or captions thrown into pictures, and it adds a lot that only this medium, as you say, could use. 
the weirdest thing, and maybe weird is not the word, but the most notable thing to me about this chapter was how both Spike and Faye are drawn like smoke and hot. <laughs> and I feel like maybe that was just shocking to me because it was the first time I was reading this manga and I was just very surprised by the art style. But Faye basically calls dibs on this five million bounty and starts referring to herself as an Asian beauty and a real hard body. And it's just like, Severe, it's time for me to go to horny jail, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Given that this issue is likely in production before the show was released, I could see how it feels a little off kilter. It still has the basic hallmarks of a bebop bounty, though. They don't get the bounty. They do a lot of damage. Uh, but yeah, Spike and Faye can get it. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. They're their own worst enemy. They get ahead, but it's, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And I guess if that's the intro message we're trying to say about this crew, it's not wrong. (laughs) Unfortunately, we're right into the terrible story that I don't really want to talk about. Uh, I don't even want to give it that much airtime, even though it felt like the longest story in this volume. It probably felt that way because I hated it, but it is called We Will Rock You, and it starts with a premise that I could have been into. They're after a bounty, but they realize that for an unrelated crime, a much more minor crime for shoplifting, their bounty has already been put in jail, and they give Spike the job of getting himself arrested to find out what happened to this bounty and break them out. That's a cool premise. And there's a scene where Faye plays this like weepy, sexy wife and she visits Spike in jail and she transfers some high tech like gadget to him to help him on this mission. Cool premise. Again, love to read it. Unfortunately, they're doing a story here that in my opinion, is both extremely homophobic and extremely transphobic. The bounty who wants to be known as Marilyn, and I'd like to refer to her as Marilyn because I think that's the story that they want us to get out of this. There's just so many jokes at her expense over like her sexuality and her being trans and it's handled very clumsily. The issue takes many shots at her, and then right at the very end, seems to like want to have a heart about it and be like, no, but we respect this character, and she has agency, and we like her, and they almost want to like be forgiven for all of the shit they put her through. And I just hated reading that, Jamie. I hated it. I would agree with you on that assessment. I was very uncomfortable in all like 20 pages of that chapter. We talked about this in a previous episode where there's this appearance of an okama trope. Uh, I did a little bit of research. The word okama is slang for gay men, and it typically just doesn't come off as a gag, even though it's treated as such. It's not the first time we see this in Cowboy Bebop. It happens again in this volume, and then happens twice more, once in Jupiter Jazz and another time in Knocking on Heaven's Door, the movie. And it's just still uncomfortable. We don't need it. I agree with you that the premise of the story has legs, and it's something that Spike would do. I just don't think that this character portrayal 
was honorable or did anyone any justice. It just felt very belittling to Marilyn the entire time. Yep. And I think that's all we need to say about it, frankly. Then let's move on. Yes. We have Cheap Trick, in which a supposedly sort of rich air kind of bored, cute guy named Nowhere Man puts a bounty on himself. And the only stipulation is that the bounty hunter must be a woman. So this is very much a Faye story. And uh, she just keeps falling into traps set by Nowhere Man. And with her falling into those traps are a bunch of other uh, woman bounty hunters as well. We don't really give them like names or rich worlds, but there are some fun character designs in there. Spike contributes a little bit through his music knowledge to finding this guy. But in the end, it's Faye sort of figuring out that they're being toyed with. And Nowhere Man always wants them sort of looking in one place, like at an actor, and he is off to the side, a different man. Faye spots him fleeing one of the traps and chases him. And he just kind of turns out to be this pathetic dude. He doesn't have the money that he claims he has. And he's really down on himself. He, I think, got rejected or something. Some sob story about women. And so he hates all women, all bounty hunters. And Faye ends up sort of giving him a pep talk. Kind of an inspiring pep talk. Like, you have to find your reason for being you And once you know who you are, you have to define the reason a woman would want you and not anybody else. It's kind of like a commentary, in my opinion, on like incel culture, you know, like you're not entitled to a relationship. You're not entitled to get what you want from women. You actually have to put some work in. And then she gets drunk with him and forgets the whole thing, which is a weird ending. Yeah. (laughs) I actually appreciate that Nowhere Man is mentioned in this issue because it's the first time that the shows actively recognize that, hey, music from a previous era exists and it's not just episode titles. (laughs) Spike provides the needed information about Nowhere Man to Faye and that helps her move along on her bounty hunting mission. But overall, I would say that this story didn't do a lot for me. I would agree with you on it being commentary, it, it does feel a little bit like these story writers had some something to say about otaku and how opinionated or entitled they might be. <laughs> that doesn't feel good. But yeah, it was nice to see Faye get the limelight. Yeah, there's also a, a funny button at the end where Spike is like super duper fed up with Faye and joking or not, says he's going to leave and wants to take Jet's secret stash of money. Jet's like, how did you know about that? And then we see a picture at the end of Faye stealing the secret stash of money. So everyone on the Bebop knew about that. I'm going to keep, I think, taking the lead on these because Jamie's the only one who read Shooting Star. So (laughs) you get to hear from me for a while. Next is Black Diamond, a man corners Faye, saying that Faye has something of his. She blinds him and runs. This is actually an example of one of the times I didn't understand what was going on in the action. It took me a second to really understand what was going on because the idea of blinding light coming from a small thing she's holding 
seemed really hard for them to draw. Anyway, Spike and Jet are interrogated by Huey, Jet's former boss from the ISSP. They cover for Faye, but a bounty is put on her head, and it turns out she has pickpocketed a mysterious card. Mysterious cards come up more than once in this manga. Not a super original idea. Jet and Spike, they're going to turn her in. They're actually going to do it. But she crashes the ship into the cops, and now they all end up wanted. Ed thinks this is hilarious. Ed is loving it. Jet negotiates their bounty cost for the trade of this card. This card turns out to be half of two cards that are needed to basically get infinite money from the bank. Whoever has the black one and the white one can just make infinite withdrawals. Seems like a magic poker chip to me. Yes. (laughs) Also (laughs) something that comes up in Bebop a lot. Just magic casino items. Jet wants to go negotiate this alone because this person used to be his former uh, supervisor and Spike follows him anyway. And thank goodness he did because these like mafia goons are there to jump Jet and Spike is able to save him. I noted that they use the word mafia in this manga a lot. And I think they mean syndicate, like the places where they used to say syndicate in the anime, the translation here seems to say mafia. Anyway, long story short, the cops are corrupt. The police officer says he will happily shoot Jet and then claim that the perp resisted and was shot. And that sure hits different right now. Yeah. And Jet reveals that he quit the ISSP because he was tired of corruption. He was tired of people like Huey. The moral here is that nobody wins, but at least thanks to Jet and Jet's sort of moral code, the bad guys still lose. My review on this chapter, I think it feels in-world. I'm not certain it added much to my understanding of the characters. This is already established territory in a lot of ways, so... It's just more of the same. Yeah, I do think it is the maybe most emotionally resonant of this book. This is how the book ends. But none of these really stuck with me as like, wow, I'm so glad this got made. It added so much for me. None of this resonates with me as as a story that I'm going to remember for very long. Some cool things about volume one. I felt the representation of the prison system was pretty cool. Um, they're all stylized in what I presume is Chinese prison style garments, um, which was a, a design choice on behalf of the manga creators. In fact, there's a lot of more like Chinese artistry or themes around Spike in general, and you get the sense that maybe he has some kind of Chinese heritage. That was an inference that I got from this reading. I don't know if you feel similarly, Lauren, but... I mean, yeah, if John Cho's going to be our Spike, I like this interpretation. Yeah, I took note in the first chapter that Faye really emphasized the fact that she was Asian and she took a lot of pride in that. That is not a super forward part of the anime's characters. I mean, we're kind of told where they're from. We know where their origins are, but the way they carry themselves and the way they talk about themselves race and country of origin, like that stuff doesn't 
seem to come up in how they speak day to day or how they relate to one another. With the exception of of Jet in the manga, who doesn't have any sort of lines or imagery like that. So before we move into volume two, because I do like volume two better, I wanted to make the general observation that the manga is just raunchier than the anime. And the anime has, you know, sexualization in it and some mature humor. But the manga seems to place it at times when it's distasteful and like maybe even out of character. There's a weird moment where Spike is like leaning up on a woman and starts guessing her measurements. And that felt extremely out of character for Spike Spiegel. Like you and I have been talking on this podcast that Spike and Jet are more immature than we remember them being from our previous watch throughs. But he's not a groper. And there's a couple of, of moments of sexual humor, and they come up in later volumes too, like someone's looking for Edward, and Spike asks, oh, do you bend that way or do you swing that way? And I was like, is no. this a gay joke? Ed's a child. What is happening yeah. here? Ooh. And they just have a couple of those moments, and I'm like, why did we write this? And it's like, it's shock humor, I think. It's it's supposed to be shocking. And that's not a type of humor that is in the anime. And thank goodness, because it doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> I think it's also during a time where manga that was written with the idea it will be widely distributed in the West. This is what Western audiences like. Or, you know, this is a space Western and we're dealing with adult themes. We need to make sure that this has some kind of edge to it. And I don't think it's necessary. I do like it when manga, you know, adds a little personal touch or emphasis, whether that's in the visual style or a really goofy frame or some kind of sub note. But uh, yeah, these were not the things I was looking for in my manga read. <laughs> well, let's get into volume two, because I think we both enjoyed that one at least somewhat more. Yeah. Some themes that I see going through volume two include important characters from our lead's past. In fact, some of them are, are good enough characters that I wish they had been in the anime. I would have loved to have seen Linda, for example. The book opens with, instead of bios of the Bebop crew, bios of the new people we are going to meet. And I think that's great because the bios written for the Bebop crew are kind of boring and inaccurate Faye does not like beta cassette tapes. That is not a passion of hers. That she, she just happens to have some. So to focus on characters that are less beloved and are new, I think they set themselves up for success because you can't really let us down with characters we don't even know yet. They're, they're, they could be great. They could be bad. But there's not all of this extra baggage of this much-loved anime hanging over the heads of these characters. The first chapter in volume two is titled She's a Rainbow. Uh, the Bebop is apparently famous or infamous now for their bounty hunting exploits. And a plucky young reporter sees this as an opportunity to land a news anchor role. So she's going to give an expose where she's interviewing the Bebop crew and she wants to know the tricks of the trade. Faye sees this. <laughs> 
as a way to earn money. So she demands an appearance fee. And our reporter, Rachel, just says yes, even though her crewmates are like, maybe we should get approval for this. It then goes into a couple pages about how the Bebop is hesitant about saying yes to this interview. And then once they're on board, they realize, oh, we can take this angle of watch the Bebop crew actually track down a bounty. And Rachel has the hard realization that bounty hunting itself isn't very glamorous at all. They're just sitting around waiting. Ed manages somehow to pull up their bounty's location pretty quickly. We meet two people who essentially exploit the elderly, drain them for all their worth, and then kill them and run off with the rest of their assets. So the Bebop crew jumps in action. They go off on their chase. They explicitly tell Rachel, hey, stay here. It's for your own safety. But what does she do? She runs off with them and ends up putting herself in danger. There's a moment of tension where she's captured by one of the bounty heads. A gun is pointed to her head. Spike has those pivotal, I'm going to shoot you moments, very serious and somber. Um, But all works out in the end. Everybody's alive. The bounty is captured and Rachel gets her expose. This episode, if you will, made me immediately realize I'm going to like this volume more than the previous one. I actually did laugh out loud reading it when Rachel was interviewing the crew. They're just terrible interviewees. They're answering in like short half sentences. Jet just saying, I enjoy trimming bonsai and saying nothing of of value about bounty hunting. And they're just even more in character than they were in the previous issue. I have no idea what she means, but like classic Ed, when Ed is asked, why did you join the Bebop crew? She answers, wee-wee towels. (laughs) And I have no idea what that means, but I could just hear Melissa Fawn, the voice actress, screaming that joyfully and giggling. It, It really felt true to these scripts. The end was also very memorable in that the bounty hunters establish that the reason they're successful at their job is because they don't spend a bunch of time thinking about justice and morals, that they are, quote, heartless. And Rachel thinks that's an awesome, like, tagline. She's like, ooh, they're heartless. That's so cool. But the comparison is Rachel herself, who does believe in justice and morals, and she's super emotional to the point where we see her, like, giving herself a pep talk on the toilet And the crew says the world is more interesting because of people like her. So I think She's a Rainbow is about Rachel. I would agree. Rachel really reminds me of Rocco's little sister, Stella, from Waltz for Venus in the sense that, you know, she has the the goodness in her heart. You know, she's kind of positive and upbeat regardless of the situation getting her down. We meet another, in my opinion, very iconic female character in Great Deceiver. Great Deceiver opens up with Faye seeing Linda Wise on a show called Today's Face. She's a consultant. She is making a lot of money. And then immediately we see on Big Shot that Linda Wise is a bounty. She's embezzling from her clients. The crew can tell immediately that this person is important to Faye. Faye takes the bounty. And we, the reader, learn that Linda is Faye's sort of grifting mentor and former best friend from about two years ago. Linda attempts to teach Faye how to deceive in 
maybe a more conservative way, I guess I'd say. Faye really wants to make big money. She wants to make it quick. She wants to make fools of men. And Linda says there are limits to deceit. She doesn't waste the money she earns. And she gets her cash and she moves on. She's not there to humiliate because she doesn't want to get spotted. The climax of this issue is Faye basically having a card game versus Linda, but I hesitate to call it that because they're not playing cards in any sort of sincere way. They're both actively and knowingly scamming one another, and the outcome of the games is based on their ability to scam. Linda bets her own freedom on the game and loses, and I think it's up for interpretation whether or not she maybe did that on purpose because she recognized her luck was out and she was being cornered. I really thought the end of this one included a sort of Spike Faye shipping moment because Linda warns Faye that love will blind you, never fall in love because that's how she ran out of luck. That's how she got busted. And after she says this, she just looks like right at Spike, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so I think whether or not it's true, she's, she's maybe warning Faye against Spike. But she goes peacefully. She lets herself be arrested, and Faye does get to say goodbye to her best friend. Lauren, I wanted a whole book about Faye and Linda. Like, I want to see all of their exploits after Faye gets her heart broken, as we will see in a future episode, and then up until the point where she meets the bebop, right? Um, I think there's plenty of Faye stories to tell, but the The addition of Linda really enhances this perspective about Faye. You know, you get to see her being openly mentored and earning her skills, whereas on the Bebop in the show, she just shows up and she's somehow this like amazing grifter and what a great shot. Like, this is the training arc we need. (laughs) Yeah, I put in my notes that it's very interesting to see Faye now before she puts on the iconic, like, yellow vinyl outfit. It blows my mind that, uh, cryo-freeze aside, Faye is supposed to be, like, 23, because I think Faye carries herself like a really self-assured divorcee with, like, years of training in grifting and shooting. I just, I mean... I don't even feel like I can carry myself like a Faye Valentine. And you're telling me this woman's 23? And we get a taste of why she's able to do that. There's not a lot of time between My Funny Valentine and Asteroid Blues kind of, you know, in the order of the story. And stuff like this, it's exactly what I wanted to know about the Bebop crew. Mm Mm-hmm. So in manga fashion, sometimes we get goofy little out-of-character things, and that's what the next issue is, Special Short. Yeah, this is just a little story about Jet being sick again, as we saw in uh, episode 9, and Faye and Spike stealing scallions from Earth while Ed does some weird magic. (laughs) It's just this little goofy interlude. Jet gets better. Uh, Spike and Faye catch his cold. We learn that somehow colds were cured, like eradicated, and now somehow they're back. <laughs> Things are stinky. It's a, yeah, I don't know. This is a really strange interlude. It has nothing to do with Bebop. It is weird that this is in here because for a second, I thought maybe this was going to be how this manga included Ed, but Ed gets a story. And 
It is called Thinking Bird Happy Song. There is a mafia hit out on a guy, and the way they're going to find this guy is that he participates in a bird contest, and it just, it's referred to as a bird contest. I don't know the rules, but it's the prettiest and best bird, and it seems like sort of a funny underground sort of society where guys sneak around with their birds, like, hiding under blankets, and then they get into this contest and they're like, here it is. Here's the goods. Look at my beautiful <laughs> bird. It's so it's so fun. So Ed is looking for food. A vendor tells her to hunt the food for herself if she can't pay for it. So Ed decides she's going to take this dude's bird. Meanwhile, there is a sniper up on a roof looking at his mark, who's one of the bird owners. This killer is literally named the killer. He is longing for someone named Elsa who's no longer on this earth. He decides this is his last job and it's dedicated to Elsa. In chasing this bird that Ed accidentally lets loose, she causes the killer to miss. The bird is lost. Ed's chasing the bird. She bites the sniper. She jumps on his face and uses him as like a springboard to catch the bird out of the sky. Bird and owner are reunited. The killer is knocked off the roof, I guess, to his death in like sort of a gruesome tragedy. And the bebop gets a really nice dinner bought for them for the return of the bird. The thing is, there's this sting at the end and there's a locket that the killer is wearing. And Elsa is a turtle. (laughs) His lost love, Elsa, is a turtle. And I had a turtle when I was a child. And... I went to college and had to leave my turtle at home, and my parents neglected my turtle until it died. No! <laughs> and so, Elsa! In, re- in real life, I actually kind of have turtle-related trauma, and I read this part and was like, oh no, I feel this man. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. The killer. I feel you. This was probably my favorite <laughs> of the stories, only because of its absurdity. Uh Fun, kooky Ed story. You get to see Ed in her native habitat, running around, bouncing everywhere, disrupting people. It's not often she gets to leave the ship. And this was an opportunity for her to explore a place that isn't the bebop. The last story in this volume is short. It's called Like a Rolling Stone. Spike is at a bar. He hears a beautiful singer on a guitar, compliments her, buys her a drink. She isn't interested. And then some creeps get up in her business and she's like, if you're a fan of me, maybe come and help me out. So Spike gets to sort of be chivalrous and saves her from these creeps. You think uh, throughout this sort of caper they go on together that she's chasing a boyfriend. She wants Spike's help finding this guy, but it's her dad and they find him. It sounds like he was kind of a deadbeat, maybe a former criminal, and she punches him in the face. And the story itself is not that interesting. It's not that deep. She, uh, The singer runs off at the end, and we never see her again. But there are a couple of moments in like the car where we really just see two lonely people confiding in one another and sharing space for a short time. And I think it's actually written that the audience is supposed to maybe ship them a little bit, like see a little bit of mutual attraction. Then they then they part forever. And 
We never have to question whether or not Spike's heart belongs to Julia. (laughs) A lot of scenery, a lot of stills, actually a fair amount of sound effects. Uh, That's one of my favorite parts about reading manga is to see what the interpretation of sounds are as characters or just how they choose to translate it. There is a moment in this chapter where the singer (laughs) helps Spike, he's arm wrestling, and she just like pulls her blouse open to distract the guy who was winning. (laughs) So she just shows her titties. Yep. (laughs) Also drawn in thick Sharpie lines. And then we come to volume three which is another change in format in that it's just two longer stories. And I think these are very rich and they get a good balance in there between character development, bringing in people from our character's past, and actual action. I think of the stories we've read, volume three comes the closest to action that is exciting and traceable. This chapter is entitled, What's Your Number?, It begins with assassins chasing down Ed and computers going down um, around our Bebop crew, Jets at the DMV, Faze at the dog races, and Spike is left to his own self napping on the Bebop. There's a break-in, and turns out Spike isn't sleeping at all. He's actually one step ahead. Um, But the people who break in are the assassins who are chasing down Ed. She's wanted for 50 million Wulongs. We find out down the line that there are two groups of hackers, one involved in the computer outage uh, Mars-wide, and the other hacker is a character named Tomato, who is part of the same orphanage that Ed is from, from Earth. And he's trying to actively keep Ed out of harm. So a lot of action happens. Tomato gets kidnapped. Ed eventually gets kidnapped. They all end up on this hacker group ship. We find out this ridiculous plot entails the hacking group cutting off all communications between Earth and the rest of the solar system to prevent Earthling children from understanding the larger world. Spike and Faye figure out who it is. They enter the ship, a fight ensues, Tomato has this big stand, and he says he's tired of being at the mercy of adults, that you can't hide the truth from kids, knowledge spreads, and we deserve to live life as free as you did. And so this is really a story about a boy who likely has feelings for Ed. Ed also kind of going along for the ride, as she usually does, um, but showcasing her hacking skills, and ultimately the survival supposedly of earthlings (laughs) that I I thought was pretty endearing. I'm glad that this story happened. We get to meet Tomato, who is essentially what we used to think um, the name across Ed's computer. We just thought her computer was named Tomato. No, it's actually this boy earthling. But ultimately, yeah, it was a thing. I read it. I don't know if I totally agree with this plot line, uh, but... (laughs) It's still a trip. I really enjoyed the message of this one. I think um, there's like a younger part of me that lives inside of me that remembers my parents reading my diary and not wanting me to use AOL Instant Messenger because who might I be talking to out there? (laughs) And it just has this feeling of like, Kids can't be controlled, you know? You can guide them and you can mentor them and try to point them in the right direction. But the more you try to 
hide the truth of the world and freedom from a kid, I think, A, you have a really strong chance of messing them up, and B, you really increase the chance that they will rebel. And even though they're very young, Tomato and Ed really have this sense of rebellion around them that I really enjoy. Uh, I admire them, even though they're like 12 or 13. And really cute at the end, Faye says, hey, I think that tomato guy likes you. And Ed goes, I like him too. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're left to wonder, um, does she know what that means? Or is she maybe too young to get it? And I think Ed is wise beyond her years. I think Ed knows exactly what that means. And I think we learned that maybe Ed's got a crush. I don't think it's going to distract her. I don't think she's going to pursue it at all. We know she doesn't because it never comes into the anime. But I ship it. I think it's cute. <laughs> You're right. This does feel like they will be the future hackers in that movie Hackers. <laughs> Hack the world. <laughs> Finally, we have Fight for Your Right, which I actually didn't write a whole lot of notes about because... This story is like all in service of its climax, this sort of really clever, multi-tiered ruse the Bebop crew pulls to win the day. There is a sort of taxi truck driver who is a family man, just like a, an innocent old guy, and he's having trouble finding business. He's given 500K to stay silent about a 50K ride through a secret hyperspace gate that nobody knows about. It's called The Dark Gates, and he ends up wrapped up in this whole plot about the Dark Gates. The man who shows him the Dark Gate has, again, a card, but not like a playing card this time, like a data card, but a powerful secret item that he just drops on the ground of the truck. The truck driver does not know it's there, ends up picking up Spike, and when the crew that realizes their expensive contraband has gone missing circles back and tries to kill this truck driver, Spike gets blamed. So the ins and outs of it are honestly not that important, but there's, there's several different parties involved. There's the syndicate that illegally has the card. There's the bounty hunters from the Bebop. There's the police. And the Bebop crew ends up deceiving all sides. They pretend to be syndicate members. They pretend to be cops. And then they also pretend to be bounty hunters, basically themselves. And everyone rendezvous at the end. The bounty hunters manage to walk away with all of the money and all syndicates involved, both taken down by cops. And then our truck driver guy decides to become a bounty hunter. And I thought that was really interesting because you, Jamie, mentioned that one of the ideas that didn't get used was an old bounty hunter count, like coming back for mm -hmm. one last ride. And this is the origin story of an old bounty hunter. <laughs> They made a point to design this truck driver character to look like Mao Yenrai. And the implication is that Spike is supposed to notice that he looks like Mao and grow a little bit more empathetic with this guy's situation. 
I don't think that's really crucial to the plot. It's kind of a strange design decision. Overall, a fun episode that I would have liked to see animated, I think, but a little convoluted. Yeah, I don't think the Mao Yenrai thing reads the way that the writers wanted it to read. I don't think it reads like a reason for Spike to care, but it sure does make this guy pass for a solid fake mafia member or a (laughs) a fake syndicate member. They make him like a fake identity and try to pass him off as like this big scary guy. And if he looks like Mao Yenrai, then he's totally going to pass, right? It's a a great (laughs) idea. I think this is one of those episodes where the Bebop crew is in top form and everyone sticks to their jobs. And by trusting each other and sticking to the plan, they do great things. And the canon manga closes with them being extremely successful. Ah, the end of the good stuff, Lauren. (laughs) Yeah, Jamie, when it comes to the bad stuff, keep it short. It's common for successful manga and light novels to get anime adaptations, and there are notable adaptation failures such as Full Metal Alchemist and Season 2 of The Promised Neverland. However, it's kind of rare to find a manga adaptation of an anime original that derails itself intentionally from page one. Unlike the three-volume set we just discussed, Cowboy Bebop Shooting Star throws 90% of Bebop right out the window. From what I can piece together, one of the big four manga publishers, Katakawa, licensed the show IP during its production. Within a side story, the creator states they received four telephone books and three videotapes worth of source material. However, we're told to brace for impact in page one's introduction. Quote, Manga artist Kane Kuga's version of the Bebop universe contained within the pages of the book you now hold in your hands offers an alternative version of the origin of the famous ship and its bounty hunting crew. So then, what's this manga all about? Chapter 1 begins with Spike and Jetta's partners on the Bebop being hired by a member of the Dragonhead Syndicate to capture his doppelganger who's run off. There's no actual bounty here. This is a self-contained story with just exposition for the mafia-heavy plot within both volumes. We're introduced to Ed in Chapter 2, portrayed as a goofy and intellectual hacker, but with a weird sense of sophistication that isn't present in the anime. She brings Datadog Ein onto the ship in Chapter 3, but the crew redeems his bounty for the cash. He escapes jail and joins the Bebop as a fugitive. Chapter 4, the Martian government personally invites our crew to capture a high-profile bounty. This introduces recurring antagonist Scorpion, a child genius smarter than Ed, a villain more calculating than vicious, and the seventh commander of the Dragonhead. After a botched infiltration of a syndicate cruiser, Spike and Scorpion confront each other, Spike is shot, and the conflict is unresolved. Chapter 5 is where I am entirely lost. The Bebop takes a beach vacation so Spike can heal. Surprise! Scorpion is there too, being all shoujo villain cool for no reason. Then we're introduced to Faye, a hired saboteur, who plants a bomb on the Bebop as leverage to retrieve and destroy high-profile data on Scorpion. Turns out he doesn't care too much for Faye, and after an attempt on her life, she stows away on the Bebop. Chapter 6 is a one-shot story about a chess-themed vigilante group. Chapter 7 returns to the mafia plot with a Bebop infiltration by a misinformed syndicate operative. In Chapter 8, we meet Scorpion's grandfather, who explains that his grandson was kidnapped and brainwashed. The crew is then tasked with Scorpion's retrieval, but it results in his death. Farewell, terrible villain. 
Chapter 9 focuses on Ed's desired return to Earth and her attempts to leave a decent farewell gift. She photoshops the crew dead so they can escape pursuit from the dragon head. Chapter 10 undoes all of that and she rejoins the crew. Then Spike discovers Earth's lost treasures hiding in a cave somewhere. Very strange. The manga concludes with a production short by King Kuga, which explains that this was a fun ride despite the months of really brutal crunch for a now-canceled story. Overall, Shooting Star is riddled with shoujo manga vibes and tales more in line with Outlaw Star. Tokyo Pop doesn't exist anymore, and this manga is unlikely to be reprinted, but I am here to say, do not waste your time or money. There is fan fiction out there that is just way more satisfying than this. And that concludes this terrible manga. <laughs> well, I can't say I enjoyed that, Jamie, but I appreciate you and the sacrifice you made reading those, and uh, I guess we don't recommend them. <laughs> do, do you recommend issues one through three? I do. I would give them a solid B. Aside from that unfortunate chapter, that gets like an F. Yes, delete that one part. And yeah, I would say maybe a B. Well, that about wraps up our manga adventure. If you listened to this bonus episode, congratulations, Bounty Hunter. You are well equipped for Friday's episode featuring E.K. Weaver. We don't have any woolongs to give you. Your reward is knowledge. (laughs) See you on Friday. Thank you for listening to the Bebop Beat. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bebop Beat. Our email address is bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com. The Bebop Beat is hosted and produced by Jamie Sanchez and Lauren Fates. Our editor and associate producer is Angela Geis. Our logo and art assets are by Kat Janda. We'd like to give a special thanks this week to Joe Pakovitz. Wee wee towels. <laughs> 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 <laughs>